this evening. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, if you need a Bible, Richard is up. He's got Bibles in his hand. Just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, as your church, as your people, Lord, whom you love, Lord, and we love you, and we thank you for this privilege, Lord, to be in this place this evening. We pray, Father, that as we go through this book of Nehemiah, Lord, you would just instill upon our hearts the truth uh, that are so rich and found in, in this book, Lord, and we just pray, Lord, that it would change our lives, change our hearts, our attitudes, that it would do that work that your Spirit desires to do in our hearts, Lord, that we would be open to, to receive all that you have to say to us this evening. We thank you for this time together, Lord. I pray your blessing upon the kids downstairs, upon uh, Gabe as he ch- shares with the youth tonight, Lord, speak through him as well. And we just thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Book of Nehemiah is such a great book because it... it answers questions like, well, what kind of a person does God pick for leadership? It answers questions like, what kinds of prayers does God answer? What, how does God's leaders respond in the middle of a crisis? And we see God working through his servant, Nehemiah, here. Now, if you remember from chapter 1, Nehemiah was informed that the walls of Jerusalem were in disarray. His heart was broken. And he prayed just this, this beautiful prayer in chapter 1. But he did more than that. And we'll see that, that, that God's man or God's woman is willing to get involved, willing to do something. Yes, uh, God's man is a man of prayer, but also God's man is a man of commitment and compassion and hard work. He's a servant. You see, as we come to chapter 2, and learn that God's man or woman does not despise the day of preparation. As uh, Zechariah 4.10 says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. And that's kind of where we're at here. See, God has not only been preparing Nehemiah for what he's about to do, about to face, but he's preparing others as well. And it's all going to come together, as we'll see this evening. Now, Nehemiah, like most people in leadership, continually faced impossible uh, circumstances. I mean, think about this. The walls, uh, they're laying in ruin, but also the fact that he was 800 miles away from the biggest concern on his heart. His people who lived in the middle of this destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, to live 20 or, you know, 30 miles away from where you work is one thing, but Nehemiah was faced with this 1,600-mile round-trip journey. And at that time, there was no such thing as state highways where you can go, you know, 80 miles per hour. I mean, 65 miles per hour. <laughs> now, to further complicate the matters, Nehemiah answered to an unbelieving king named King Artaxerxes. So that even before Nehemiah could even leave his position as cupbearer, to this king, something had to change in the king's heart and in the king's mind to let him go. Now again, when Nehemiah first heard of the condition of the walls in Jerusalem, the first thing he did was go to God in prayer. And then he's just trusting God to open the doors and change the heart of his boss. And here in chapter 2, we see how that prayer is answered. But look at verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, some of your older Bibles may say Dotson, in that... Um, 
<laughs> I like that one. I was excited about that one tonight. <laughs> but, but if you remember, Nehemiah first prayed in chapter 1 in the month of, Ch- of Chislev, which is mid-November to mid-December. And now it's, it's, it's Nisan, which is March, mid-March to, to mid-April. Now, why are these dates important? Two reasons. Number one, because it shows us that Nehemiah prayed and fasted and sought the Lord for four long months. I mean, he must have pleaded with God concerning his position in the court. I mean, it was hard enough to, to get on the Persian court, but then to even harder to get out. And so he must have struggled. Lord, how am I going to do this? What, just in prayer for those four months. Should I, I speak to the king uh, and risk the punishment that comes with that? Or should I wait and just trust God you're going to open the doors to me? I mean, a lot to pray about. So for several months, Nehemiah, Nehemiah prayed. But also reason number two, the date is important because this is the date that the king gave the commandment to Nehemiah to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. He were told in Daniel chapter 9 that there are 77 determined upon the nation Israel. And from the time of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, the prince would be seven sevens and 62 sevens or 483 years, according to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. So here on the 14th of March, 445 B.C., the commandment was given to Nehemiah to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. And it can be established that the date of the coming Messiah would be 483 years later. Just as it was prophesied 483 years later, according to the Babylonian year of of 360-day years, Jesus came in on his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on April 6, 32 A.D. Now, we know that Daniel also prophesied that, but the Messiah would be cut off and receive nothing for himself, Daniel 9.26, and the people would be dispersed. And Jesus was cut off. He was crucified without receiving the kingdom, and the Jews ended up dispersed throughout the world. So this is why we have these dates recorded for us. We don't always have dates recorded for us. There's a reason behind this, to know how long Nehemiah prayed and to see the prophecy of the coming Messiah. So now that Nehemiah's all prayed up, he still hadn't said anything to the king yet, but... but Soon his grief would be too much to bear. You know, you've heard of people that they wear their emotions on their sleeve or their heart on their sleeves. This was happening with Nehemiah. Look again at verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Now, Nehemiah, he'd been praying, he'd been fasting, he'd been weeping, no doubt. Finally, God is opening this door. Nehemiah doesn't even have to speak a word. I mean, it's just all over his face, his countenance, come walking in. And you, know, you can picture him. You know, maybe he's always a happy guy. Hey, king, how you doing? And, and now he's coming in. Here's your wine. You know, just, just, this, just this sad. And the king noticed it. Look at verse 2. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then Nehemiah says, So I became dreadfully afraid. Why would he be afraid? Well, in that day, in the king's presence, I mean, being sad could bring awful consequences, even death. Because the Persian king could, could have had him killed for, for any reason at all, or even no reason whatsoever. Now, coupled with the fact that Nehemiah wanted to ask the king permission for repairs to Jerusalem, uh, caused by the destruction of the king's army, it's no wonder we read that he became dreadfully afraid. You know, almost everyone has a boss, some of their, they're accountable to for their work, their job. Sometimes, you know, things that we experience in our lives affect how we feel and what we do. And I think it can be shown forth in our attitudes. 
and in our hearts and in our emotions. You know, maybe you had a bad night and you got up late for work and you get to work and, and you kind of got this bad attitude and your boss says, well, good morning, how are you? And, and you say, what's so good about it? <laughs> and your boss goes, man, well, I thought that guy was a Christian, but what's going on in his life? See, our attitudes can, can be seen pretty clearly by those around us, especially our bosses. Now, it's also worth noting that Nehemiah had a boss long before he became a boss. He, had, uh, he was being led all, be- all long before he started leading, which tells us that a true leader must know how to receive instruction, even correction, before they're even qualified to give instruction. Well, for Nehemiah, the time for confrontation has arrived. How is he going to handle it? And you think about it, how, how do you handle confrontation? You know, confrontations with a boss who's unsympathetic or insensitive or unconcerned with spiritual things can be a real pain, can be a real hassle, and you can be real concerned over it. And sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances with people, especially with those who maybe have authority over us, and, and they're beyond your power to change. And I think the message God has at that point is to do what Nehemiah did to begin with, and that was to pray. You pray first. You've got a, a confrontation with the boss, and, and man, you know you're going to have to go talk to them. Make sure you're praying. Hudson Taylor once said, it's possible to move men through God by prayer alone. And they may say, well, what if, what if the boss doesn't budge? What, what if, what if the, the, you know, the king doesn't change? Well, the Medes and the Persians at that time had a saying that some, some, something like this. They said, don't try to change this. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. In other words, what they meant is don't even try to change the law of the Medes and the Persians because they're, they're, they're not subject to change. It's not going to happen. In fact, King Artaxerxes, I mean, had a reputation of being uh, impossible to change. But listen and mark down Proverbs 21.1. It's an interesting proverb. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. In the Hebrew language, the sentence does not begin with the king's heart, but with the word channels or, or the rivers. The more likely meaning is irrigation ditches or channels. These are the ditches that run to the, from the main reservoirs to the dry, thirsty flatbeds. In other words, like irrigation ditches that carry water, so is the heart of the king. His decisions and, and, and attitudes are in the Lord's hands because God is in control. God is sovereign. You may say, well, well what if you know, my boss isn't, uh, isn't a believer? It doesn't matter. God, God ultimately is still in, in control. God can change the heart to bend. He turns it wherever he wishes. In other words, God can dig the ditch of your boss's heart and make it go in a different direction because what is true of the king is still true for you and me. God can and does still change hearts through prayer. He does. Now, I also suspect that Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, is really fond of Nehemiah. Even pagan bosses can really care about their employees. I think about, about Jacob and Laban, and that Laban was blessed because God was blessing Jacob. And so because of God's hand on Nehemiah, the king was being especially blessed. Uh, you know, and I think that you know, many companies today you know, that have hired Christians or, or where there's a larger percentage of Christian workers, if they're living like they should, obeying the authority over them, as Paul speaks of, then their business should thrive. I, I think of Chick-fil-A you know, or, or Hobby Lobby. These businesses are thriving. Why? Because you've got men and women, you know, born-again Christians that are working as unto the Lord and serving as unto the Lord. So here's Nehemiah. He's longing for Jerusalem. His heart, soul, and mind were there. He desperately uh, just, just, just wants to be there. The, the circumstances in Jerusalem, he, he wants to be different. 
But, but he just couldn't get up and leave his job. He may leave his boss. The bottom line was God was going to have to change the boss's heart in order for him to leave. And that's why, you know, again, Nehemiah prayed back in chapter 1, verse 11, paraphrased, Lord, you've got to change his mind, change his heart, alter his attitude, change the situation so I can be allowed to do your will with his blessing, with the pleasure of my boss. See, again, Nehemiah just didn't walk off the job. I've got to go see. He prayed. Now, remember what, what happened, I said before, after, after Nehemiah prayed. Nothing at first. Four months had gone by. Have you ever waited like for, for longer than you really wanted to from an answer from the Lord? Oh, Lord, I'm seeking this. And oh, Lord, oh, Lord, could you just tell me yesterday, let me know what, what I need to do right away. And you pray all day, nothing changes. You pray all week and nothing changes. You pray all month and nothing changes. But to see a true leader like in Nehemiah must be willing to pray and pray and pray. Why? Because God insists on his timing. He insists on his timing. God had a plan and a purpose for Nehemiah's life, but it was according to God's timing, not one minute sooner, not one minute later. And a true leader needs to learn to accept that. And again, by now, the burden of Nehemiah's heart, the deep conviction was so heavy upon him, it could no longer be hidden. At the very moment when when he found this crushing burden almost intolerable, God answers. God acts. God moves. When he gets to the point where he's going, oh, I just can't take this anymore, God says, okay. Now I'm going to move. And in fact, he uses Nehemiah's discouragement to initiate God's plan. Again, the king asked Nehemiah in verse 2, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? There's an important principle here that Alan Redpath points out in his commentary. He says this, It's on the man with a crushing sense of burden and responsibility whom God can trust with his work. If you don't have a heart that is burdened with an overwhelming sense of conviction, you will never be fruitful in the service of the Lord. And again, he goes on with this. He says, Nobody should be teaching in the Sunday school or preparing for the ministry or training for the mission field until as the outcome of prayer, the burden for the particular sphere of service has become so intense that you cannot keep it any longer. When that happens, God acts. The initiative for opening doors of service is never ours, but His. I like that. So, Notice in verse 3 how direct and honest Nehemiah answers the king's question because, you know, his burden has been so great. Look at verse 3. So he says to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? You know, I can picture Nehemiah after saying that going, What did I say? You know, just, just this shock. Have you ever rehearsed things over and over in your, in your head, how you would say something, how you think it was going to go, and then finally it's time to say it and it just all goes out there and you go, oh man. I mean, this was the moment Nehemiah was waiting for. He had prayed that God would change his boss's heart. He spilled his guts why he was so sad. And then the king responds in verse 4. Then the king said to me, what do you request? Again, I pictured this, this shock on his face. <laughs> what do I want? You mean you're not going to kill me? <laughs> For spilling my guts just like that, because being sad in your presence, all that I just said. Now, I love the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. This is really worth underlining or highlighting. The king asked Nehemiah, what do you request? And Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. Underline that. Now, I'm sure Nehemiah didn't go into this long, lengthy prayer before the king. Oh, Father in heaven, touch this heathen king in such a way that he's going to give me everything that I'm about to ask for because I know he's such a great king and I I know he's so kind. He's going to do this great thing because he knows it's good and he's such a good guy. Amen. Now, he didn't use manipulation in his prayer. In fact, we read that he prayed to God 
and then said to the king. So it was more like, like a prayer to himself. The one something like, oh, God, give me wisdom. What am I about to say? Oh, Lord, help me just have the right words. I think of Paul's admonition in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. It's an attitude of the heart that in every decision you make, every answer that, that you have, you say it's bathed in prayer. But listen, prayer can be instantaneous. You know, the boss calls you into work. Hey, I need to talk to you. Oh, Lord, help me to respond in a way that you help me to respond. You know, someone says something that, that, that offends you. Lord, help me to not respond in my flesh, to not say something that's going to misrepresent you. So, verse 4, we read Nehemiah say, So I prayed to the God of heaven, verse 5, And I said to the king, if it, is, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him a time. Now, why does Nehemiah point out that the queen was with the king? Well, I think a reason is, is for the, the word queen here. It means consort or intimate friend. I think both the king and the queen seem to think real highly of Nehemiah. Now, it could be that the queen leaned over and whispered into the king's ear, Hey, ask when he's going to be back. <laughs> and like a good husband, he obeyed his wife and said, So, when will you return? <laughs> Again, my personal theory is that they loved Nehemiah so much that they were going to miss him and they wanted to know how long he would be gone. I mean, he was a, a great cupbearer, a faithful and, and, and a diligent friend. And that's the way it needs to be. And if you're, you know, moving and having to switch jobs, uh, to be able to have that reputation uh, of work where they said, man, we are going to miss you. You've been such a good employee. Are there any others like you that we can hire? So, they asked him when will he be back. And so in verse 6, Nehemiah set him a time or gave him a time. You know, Nehemiah doesn't go, well, I'm, I'm stepping out by faith and it's going to take as long as it takes, you know, as God leads. No. Nehemiah gave them something to go on. He had a plan. Listen, it's true that God will lead us, but God also honors plans. God honors order and organization. No doubt, Nehemiah had done more than pray for the last four months. He also planned. See, stepping out in faith doesn't mean that you have no plan. When you go forward in faith, it's okay to have a plan. We shouldn't just kind of do this haphazard, you know, unplanned fashion. Okay, what are the costs? What are the pitfalls? What's our objective? What are we trying to accomplish? Where is this going to lead us? We get all those, those factors in place. You know, I know we're looking at, at, I shared this last week, we're looking at purchasing the storefront on Glenstone. But before we do, you know, we need to count the cost. We feel the Lord is leading, but man, we want to count the cost. And I tell you, if it happens, there is no doubt that it's going to be of the Lord because it, 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 at this point it doesn't look like it's going to happen. But, but either way, you know, that they're, you know, they're wanting a, a uh, we're wanting to know, okay, what are the, the costs per month, the, the camp charges are called, what's it going to cost for the parking lot and the lights and all that stuff. And they say, well... You know, we can't tell you that until you put an offer in. Well, we're not going to put an offer in until they tell us that. So we're to stand still. But, but that's okay. You know, we can take whatever God wants because Proverbs 69 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so it's good to step out in faith. It's good to have these plans. But we trust that the Lord is going to direct. The Lord is going to open doors. The Lord is going to shut doors because God is in control. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we don't do our due diligence and make plans accordingly. 
Chuck Swindoll writes, The most disillusioned people I know are those in the Lord's work who are paying the price of not thinking through their plans. See, planning is hard work. Thinking about it is exciting as as involvement. But good leaders, they do their homework, and I believe that God honors that. Now, I love what Nehemiah does next. Look at verse 7. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king... Let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. Now some people read that and go, Are you nuts, Nehemiah? I mean, the the king didn't kill you because you were sad, and now you're asking for more? (laughs) I mean, kind of pushing your luck. But you see, luck has... Nothing to do with it. Nehemiah already bathed this in prayer. God answered powerfully, so, so why not? I, you know, I might as well ask for more. Now, what was Nehemiah asking for? Well, he's asking for timber to build himself a house. That's practical. Hey, when I get there, I need some place to live. You know, you know, I need that. And he's asking for letters from the king, or you might say a passport when I travel. Practical things. I mean, imagine if he, he, he left... And he comes to the board of Susa and he meets the first official and says, Man, I'm going to Jerusalem by faith. Fisher says, Great, where's your letters? Where's your passport? No, dude, you don't understand. I'm going by faith. You know, I, I'm going by faith. No, I understand, dude. You know, go back and get your passport. So Nehemiah prayed to God, made his plans, identified the possible hurdles, and did all that he could to avoid them. So again, walking in faith is not just checking our responsibilities at the door. It's the whole package, praying, planning, preparing, and going. Nehemiah planned ahead, and if, and, if, and if he came to that same official, he would say, listen, I've got letters from King Artaxerxes, dude, to let me go through. <laughs> okay, go through. He enters Asaph's territory, man, go on through. He says, I need some timber, the king's timber. king's fronting me this timber to build my house. You bet, here you go. I love, I love it because at verse 6 said, it pleased the king to send me. And verse 8 says, and the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And the king just, man, you bet I'm going to bless you. Just more than happy to, to, to help him out. See, when you're in the will of God and you take steps of faith, God opens doors that will just blow you away. Well, verse 9, Nehemiah goes on. He says, well, then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. These guys we're going to see and read more about as we go through. Uh, There'll be a continued source of trouble and harassment from here on in. But here's the truth. When you walk by faith, when you pray, when you plan, you're still going to experience opposition. You're still going to uh, have Sambalots and Tobias come against you. And let me say this, when you want to do something for the Lord, you'll always find people that are going to come along and say, it's not going to work, it's not going to happen, don't do that. Watch out for people like that. Watch out for people who say, it won't work. These guys did not want Nehemiah to succeed. They had financial interests in him not succeeding. The insecurity and stability of the circumstances of Jerusalem was great money-making opportunity for them. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that there are people out there who benefit in a financial way from the misfortune of others. Now, think of the, the drug industry, the counseling industry, the prostitution industry, the tobacco industry, the liquor industry. Nehemiah's plan was, was sure to hurt their pocketbooks. 
See, when people love Jesus, turn from their sins and accept the Savior, if everything goes well, sin, sin's uh, industry will be affected. Sin's industry will be affected. I think of over in Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus, and a man named Demetrius opposed Paul because Demetrius was a maker of idols. And, and, and people were turning to Christ right and left, and they were turning away from the idols, and, 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 turning, and, and basically the idol, idol business was going out of business. And Demetrius didn't like that, so he came against Paul. Again, when, when people love Jesus and they turn from their sins and they accept the Savior, if everything goes well, sin's industry will be affected. And people who are sinners, they don't like that. When you walk by faith, you're going to annoy people who walk by sight. So, verse 11 says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Now, what did he do for three days? Don't know. But from judging his, by his past, I bet he sought further direction from the Lord. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think he, you know, he didn't start the service, uh, start a service for God until he was alone with God, until he was counting the cost. But after that, I'm sure he never looked back. So I'll pray to have a look at verse 12. Then I rose in the night, and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. It's interesting, Nehemiah says in verse 12, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. In other words, when Nehemiah was quiet and alone, God was putting some exciting information in his mind and in his heart. Now, how did Nehemiah put these things in his heart? Well, I expect it was the Word of God. I mean, how, how does God put things in our hearts? Through, through reading God's Word, through, through, through prayer, through Bible study, through fellowship with other believers as we share what God's doing in our lives. It's like, man, God speaks to our hearts. Nehemiah drew his strength and direction from spending time with the Lord. Now it's time for action. Look at verse 13. And I went up by the night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gate for, which were burned with fire. Then I went onto the fountain gate and did the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. I mean, he's going, you know, down the southern part of the city of Jerusalem counterclockwise, and he comes to the king's pool. It was so fallen down, garbage and debris, he had to get off his animal and walk. Verse 15. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. You know, he's looking at the wall. He, the, 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 he viewed the wall, it says there in verse 15, or he inspected it for damage. It means to, to look at something very carefully. It's a medical wound, uh, probing a wound to see the extent of the damage. Why? Well, because he's a leader with a plan. And leaders have to be aware of the details in order to make plans to have a plan of action. Now, there's a giant, gigantic difference between being aware of the details and being lost in the details. Again, Chuck Swindoll writes, the individual who is able to stand back, being fully aware of the facts and yet not lost in them, is the one best equipped to lead. In other words, Nehemiah is trying to determine what person with what skill would be suited specifically for the needs that need to be done there. I mean, it, it takes careful builder to make a wall, but it takes maybe less skill to remove debris, yet both jobs are needed to do the work. In the same way, what has God gifted you to do? What has God equipped you to do? We're all needed in the body of Christ. But God has given us different gifts and no one gift is more important than the other. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. 
And, and he goes on and he says, you know, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is there therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body? His point is, God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. What areas has God placed uh, best suited you for the task that God is calling you to do? So Nehemiah, he's inspecting, he's saying, okay, I'm going to need some bricklayers over here, I'm going to need some debris haulers over here, I'm going to need this over there. Look at verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. So I think it's reasonable to assume that Nehemiah was going to ask a lot of the people there and needed to make sure he had all his facts straight, that he had the truth about the walls. Now think about this. Remember Nehemiah's reaction when we first heard about the walls. I mean, he broke down in tears. He cried. Now he's, he's walking around them. And he's seeing it with his own eyes. Alan Redpath writes this. Imagine his grief of heart as he stumbled among those ruins of what was once a great and mighty fortress. Whenever a real work of God is to be done, some faithful, burdened servant has to take a journey such as Nehemiah took to weep in the night over the ruins, to wrestle in some dark Gethsemane in prayer. Are our hearts ever stirred like that? Have you ever lost one hour of sleep over the tragic spiritual death of your church and your city? Has it ever kept you awake? Have, and have you cried, Oh God, what can I do about this thing? There's a, a, a great American soul winner by the name of Samuel Hadley who one night in New York after he'd been visiting uh, in just a few of the great city's homes, he leaned against a lamppost and was overheard by someone as he groaned this, Oh God, the sin of this city is breaking my heart. See, that's the side of leadership that people, some people never see. Yeah, Nehemiah's very public ministry begins, though, in a very private way. Someone has said, reputation is what people think you are, and character is what you are in the dark alone when no one else is watching. Who are you when no one else is looking? See, the thing that will earn people's respect is not what you do in public, but what you do in private. Well, look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Don't miss that word, us, there. He doesn't ask them to build the wall. He identifies with them. He doesn't say, look at this sorry, pitiful situation you guys got yourself into. You people need a wall. You need, you need my help. I'll be in my office and slam the door. doesn't do that. You know? That's never any way to get anything done. It's not you have to do this or that. It's, it's we. We can get this done. How are we going to do this together? Verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. I love that. They told them of the things of God, uh, what God spoke to his heart, and it excited them. I mean, man, let, let us go. Let's do it. I mean, this is a huge step of change. Before the people, they were apathetic. They were, they were uh, 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 lacked motivation. They, 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 they had grown content in doing nothing. I think one of the greatest obstacles to starting a huge work of God is, is to overcome the apathy and the lethargy and the complacency of the people of God. Because they started out apathetic and complacent and indifferent. But now they're willing to do something. Why? Because they had a God-sent, God-inspired leader. One writer said, Effective Christian service demands a spirit-filled leader whose vision and self-sacrifice inflame those who are sharing in the work of God. I like that. 
Well, now that they're all ready to work, here comes the opposition. Again, look at verse 19. But when Sambalot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Now, these guys, I mean, we're going to see more of these guys, but they're watching the whole situation and they didn't want anyone to mess with their lucrative business of making money off of Jerusalem's misfortunes. And, uh, uh, and Nehemiah was about to change all that. But notice these sentences are put in such a way just to irritate, just to destroy, just to bring you know, conflict and confusion. Notice that Nehemiah says, they laughed at us, they despised us, and mocked at us. You know, even though your parents said to you erroneously, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you, that's not true, okay? <laughs> names do hurt. Names, names are like little daggers that stick to your body. And that's what Satan's plan was here. He's going to use words to kind of take the wind out of their cells to try to unmotivate them. Notice the two sentences here in verse 19. First it was, what is this thing you are doing? I mean, he's seeking to draw them into a conversation that would go nowhere, to slow down their motivation. So what exactly are you doing again? What are you trying? You, we need to talk. We need to have a committee. We need to sit in here and talk about this. Wait, wait a minute, you know. But here's the thing. You don't have to give an explanation to the enemy. You owe no explanation to the enemy. I've heard people who have started saying that, well, before you pray, you need to bind Satan. I bind you, Satan, from, from this prayer. Jesus never taught us to bind Satan or even to, to talk to Satan. Uh, you know, I mean, he taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven, acknowledging God first. I don't read anywhere in scriptures we're told to hold any conversation with the devil whatsoever. In fact, you've heard it said when the devil comes knocking, let Jesus answer the door. See, my prayers are to God. I don't have any explaining to do to the devil. I don't have to tell him what I'm doing. I don't have to give him the time of day. But what else was his strategy? Look at the second sentence the enemy brings in verse 19. Will you rebel against the king? Now, that was an outright lie. But they were bringing that accusation. You know, you know it's something that the enemy throws at you, you know, that, that he brings up in front of you a question that's really not even an issue at all. Why? Because again, if he knows that he can spend all your time trying to explain yourself and what you're doing, that you're not spending time doing the work of the Lord. These were meant as distractions. The plan is to get you so busy with non-essentials that you fail to do what God has called you to do in the first place. And that was their plan. Get them distracted, get, get this into a committee where you have to discuss it for the next 10 years and nothing gets done. But, but not Nehemiah. He was not going to give in to these guys. He says, God's going to take care of us. Look at verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself are prosperous. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem, in your face. He just ignored their charges, staked everything on the God of heaven. His answer was brief. Man, it was to the point. The God of heaven himself is going to prosper. I mean, just he's serving notice. From this time forward, the enemy or the descendants will, will, will no longer prey on the Jews. See, Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem, your days are never, no longer should you expect any money, neither should you expect to exercise your authority over the people of Jerusalem. Basically, he's saying that if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, he knew, Nehemiah knew he was doing the work of the Lord. And he was determined to not let anyone or anything except God himself stop the work. Now again, there will always be people who will seek to thwart the will of God in your life to mock you for being a Christian. When you stand up for your faith, as Nehemiah did, though the enemy will use his servants to come against you. People hate when Christians stand up for their faith. People want us to remain silent. They want us to, to, to not share our faith. 
Someone said, stand for something or fall for anything. Listen, it does take courage to stand up for Jesus. And whenever you do take a risk, you do face ridicule and opposition of people, but the risk is worth it. Why? Because God is in control. God is powerful. And who knows what God may want to accomplish in your life as you stand for Him. I'll close with this. First American steamboat took 32 hours to go from New York to Albany. People left. The horse and buggy passed the early automobile as if it were standing still. People left. The first electric light bulb was so dim, people had to use a gas lamp to see it. People left. The first airplane came down 59 seconds after it left the ground. People left. People may laugh at you because you're a Christian, but Jesus Christ will be king. He'll be crowned king of this earth. The cause of Christ will triumph, and it will for Nehemiah, as we'll see next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We thank you that we could look at your servant Nehemiah and glean so much from his heart, his attitude, his willingness to serve, his humility, Lord God, his his standing firm upon your promises. Lord, help us as we go our way this night, Lord, to take all that you have for us from this word tonight and apply it to our lives, Lord. Help us to have that confidence to stand in faith, Lord, but also to make the plans, Lord, knowing that, that, Lord, that we make the plans, but you will direct our steps. You will, you will open the doors and you'll shut doors. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith that you've given to us. Help us to stand in faith, Lord, despite the attacks, the, the mockeries of people coming against us. Lord, help us to not give in to the uh, endless you know, uh, questions, Lord, that, that from the enemy seeking to dis, dis, uh, disrupt us from the work that you've called us to do. Lord, we thank you for, uh, again, this time tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.